Welcome to the Excel Still More podcast. I am your host, Chris Emerson. I'm here to encourage you in your walk with God. Thank you for joining in. Today's podcast is sponsored by a wonderful company, Creation to Revelation. This group of Christians believe it is extremely important that we teach the Word of God to our kids. They have original graphic illustrations from the beginning of the Bible to the end, featuring the beautiful and consistent presence of Jesus throughout. You can explore all of that at creationtorevelation.com. I'm so thankful you're here, so let's get started. Welcome. I hope that your day is going well, and I want to thank you for joining today. If you were able to catch last week's episode titled Pharisees and Jesus, then you already know that we are in the middle today of a three-part series making some comparisons in the early chapters of Mark's Gospel. I promise not to use valuable time today recapping all of last week's episode, but suffice it to say that Mark chapter 2 is extremely rich in identifying the problematic motives and disturbed heart of the Pharisees with the genuine heart and humble purposes of Jesus. I hope it was clear in that episode that we didn't present it so that you could identify Pharisees around you and send them podcast links. Our journey on this program is self-analysis. Have I been like those Pharisees, staring right into the face of the true mission of Jesus and choosing to be suspect or judgmental or heartless right in the face of it? I'm really interested in hearing your feedback on that episode, which I should have heard by now, except... I'm actually recording all three of these episodes pretty close together a couple of weeks ago from your perspective, so they'll all be done before the first one airs. So if you've sent me emails or Facebook messages, texts, or made calls and we've discussed it, I probably would have worked in your thoughts into subsequent episodes, except they were already in the can. As it is, though, I'm feeling pretty good about the fact that we're working these episodes straight out of the text, so I have a fair amount of confidence they'll be well-received. One more thing about Mark 2 and last week's episode that will lend itself to where we're headed today. One of my favorite things to look for when reading the Gospels is the specific way the author of that Gospel puts stories and events together on purpose to build out the point that that author is intending. For instance, in Mark chapter 2, we got four events from Jesus' ministry, and each one conveniently included a question by the Pharisees that just fits together as four incredible points. And then to begin chapter three, Jesus fires off a question in return, and it's just this super preachable text. I'm not sure all of those events happened in that order or on the same day, but Mark put them together on purpose. So you're going to see that a little bit in Mark 7 today in the back end of our episode. But when you're reading the Gospels or narrative text, start asking this additional question. Why did the author put it together this way? If that's something that's intriguing to you, then do it, for instance, in Jesus' teaching when he puts parables together. Why bunch those together? Or the themes that he discusses through the Sermon on the Mount. He could have put them in any order, paired them up differently. What is he trying to show you in the way it's structured? Anyway, maybe that's boring preaching stuff, but it's something that excites me when I get up in the morning and start reading. In today's episode, we're keeping the Pharisees around, and we're letting them be the lead name in the title again, except this time we want to compare who they are with who Jesus' disciples were. 
all of these people had the option to follow Jesus and be saved by him. The Pharisees chose not to be, and there were reasons for that, reasons they felt very noble and appropriate. The disciples, who had been trained somewhat in the ilk of the Pharisees, were not married to their traditions in the same way, had not established themselves in some place of worthiness, and therefore fell at the feet of Jesus humbly, and were not only saved by him, but changed by him. As stated earlier, the goal today is very simple. You and I want to be less like those Pharisees and more like the pure-hearted disciples. If you happen to know someone in your life who needs to make that same change, just be sure and apply this to yourself first and share it with them in a state of humility and love. Before we get into the simple comparison of Mark 7, I want to show you how often Jesus did this in his storytelling. His parables often included characters that were very different from one another, usually wildly on different extremes, quite often, I believe, referencing the Pharisees on one end and his disciples on the other, and ultimately asking you to let it settle in your heart and make a decision. I want to begin by showing you a few of those parables, the most explicit of which that literally uses the term Pharisee is in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. The Bible says, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted." Jesus didn't pull any punches there. He literally said it was a Pharisee, which is one end of their religious spectrum, and a tax collector, which is on the other. So my question to you is simple. Why did he tell you that story? It seems that he wants me to recognize that Pharisees and those of us who know the law really well and check a lot of the right boxes can find ourselves standing when we should be kneeling. We can very easily turn our pronouns from him and others to I, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. It is very easy for people with knowledge of the truth to become puffed up by that knowledge. I don't even think he went there to seek justification. He felt pre-justified. And so it's fitting at the end that Jesus said he did not leave justified in the eyes of God. Instead, no matter how long you've been a Christian or what you know we all need to remember that we're no different than that tax collector. We approach God on our knees, at least figuratively, if not literally. We proclaim our unworthiness and we beg for his mercy. And as he provides it for us, we express tremendous joy and gratitude because we have been justified by God, not by ourselves. The saddest part of that short parable is that the Pharisee made an argument for himself by comparing himself to that tax collector over there, which has a ton of irony associated with it, because if he had properly compared 
his approach and his attitude to that tax collector, maybe he could have had his sins forgiven. Anyway, I love how Jesus does this over and over again because it forces you to see two pictures and choose which one am I and which one do I need to be. It's not always the Pharisees. Sometimes he changes the language. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest passed the Jew by on the other side of the road. I sometimes say in preaching, they had to get to church. They couldn't stop to help a dying man. The Samaritan comes along, a man that most people would show no kindness to, and you know the rest of the story. He takes care of the wounded Jew. It's not a Pharisee, but he does use the term priest or Levite. Is there any larger gap of worthiness than that between a priest who officiates in the temple and a mixed-blooded Samaritan? The upside-down kingdom reveals itself again by creating such a gap. Being a priest and officiating at the temple and knowing the law only has value if you love people. If you, like in Matthew chapter 5, leave your offering at the temple to go make things right with your brother or to help someone who is dying on the side of the road. I think the reason it carries such extra weight for us is that we are kind of both of these people. We are priests. We have knowledge. We are Christians. And yet we are to carry the humble servant heart of that Samaritan, or maybe I should say the humble servant heart of Jesus. One other example comes to mind where it's not Pharisees, but it's a very similar kind of comparison. Remember the poor widow in Luke 21? Jesus didn't have to tell this story. It was happening right in front of them. This poor widow puts her two small copper coins in while the rich are putting their extra money, their leftovers in the treasury. There's a huge gap between the rich Jewish leaders and people and this poor widow. And yet, of course, they were giving out of their surplus and just kind of checking the box of giving, whereas Jesus said she has given more than all of them. She has even given what she would have needed to live on. Man, that comparison hits me right in the heart because kind of like the Good Samaritan story, we are both people. We are rich. We have many good things. It is easy to just give out of our surplus at church or a little bit for people here and there. But it is something altogether different to be all in, to submit all that I have to the will and service of the Lord. That forces me to reassess and make adjustments. That story, by the way, always reminds me of the chicken and the pig being hired by the farmer. The chicken gets to just contribute one egg per day. The pig is going to require full self-sacrifice. Okay, we need to get this thing to Mark chapter 7 at some point, but I just wanted you to see the way Jesus used parables, and I hope that you're valuing them for how they help you assess yourself where you are and your direction and your progress. Oftentimes, Jesus didn't need to tell a story. The behavior of the Pharisees compared to true followers told the story for itself. One example of this before we get to Mark 7 is found in Luke chapter 7, when he was invited to a Pharisee's house named Simon to recline at the table. A woman came in. She was a sinner known in the city. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. She knelt down at his feet. Her tears wet his feet. She dried his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet and anointed them with perfume. The Pharisee had the gall to say, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of person that woman is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered, Simon, I've got something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. 
He said a moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I don't know about you, but that's just emotional to read out loud. Simon the Pharisee believes himself to be noble and established and worthy. So he doesn't see the need to serve Jesus and honor Jesus from a lowly place. This woman knows exactly who she is. She's exactly who Simon says that she is, a sinner from the community that deserves nothing. So she expends her money on perfume her tears upon his feet, and demonstrates true, humble, amazing faith. You don't need me to take five minutes being a commentator on this. It is not hard for us to slide towards Simon's seat. It may be reflected in the way that we speak or pray or worship. It can certainly be reflected in how we feel like the way we do things has somehow put us above other people. Like we said last week, we may even start to believe that no one can even access Jesus lest they do it in some way associated with us or me or our established system. What Simon missed is this woman is demonstrating the way that it has always worked. And I need to be more like her because I am her. It doesn't matter how long I've been going to church or how many sermons that I've preached. It doesn't matter how much I know or what I think I can prove. I am not worthy to be known by Christ, and yet he stands right before me. Maybe, side note, the lack of capacity by some of us to wash other people's feet is because we're not even on our knees washing the feet of Jesus. Okay, at long last, with about a third of the episode left, let's look at some of this same stuff in a really cool way in Mark chapter 7. I already went through this in the opening portion of the episode, but Mark is intentionally putting two stories together that do not look like they connect, but he links them with some heart stuff in between. And when paired together, they pack an incredible and maybe needful punch. So you probably remember the first story. The Pharisees are upset with Jesus' disciples because they're not washing their hands the right way. We could talk on that all day, but we'll skip it. Ultimately, they at least admit in verse 5 that it is the, quote, tradition of the elders. I think that is kind of interesting to note that they're admitting that it is a tradition that is not the law, but of course they seek to apply it as law. Jesus comes back and quotes the Old Testament where men would come and worship vainly because they would teach as doctrine the precepts of men. He says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, I've got to talk about this for a minute. Because I think this gets quoted in a lot of sermons to reference those in the religious world who take a lot of liberties that we may not believe they have a right to take. We might say people aren't out there obeying the commandments of God. They're just out there doing whatever traditional things they want. I'm not saying there isn't truth to that, 
But it's not exactly the point here, is it? The point here are that the law dogs, the sectarians, have built more restrictions where there should be freedom. They have elevated their own traditions to law. Bonus side note, I think that's the idea of Galatians 1, where we talk about that distorted gospel and we often point out into the world where there may very well be a distorted gospel. But the whole point of Galatians is not some distorted gospel of taking unnecessary liberties. It is instead the distorted gospel of the Jewish leaders bringing Christians under bondage where they have no right. So that's what Jesus is picking at here. And then he gives them an example. He says, look, Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. So basically, they had formed laws and commitments to God that led them to set aside the fundamental law of God to love your neighbor. They are not loving and generous and kind to their parents like they should be, and they're behaving like that in the name of God. As we look at this comparison that's coming, that's what I want you to remember. Some laws they had determined about God led them to a place of pride and ultimately destroyed the heart of love that God seeks most, even with their family. So from there in the middle section, leading to the other end of the comparison, Jesus kind of plays on this idea of not washing your hands, meaning that you may get some dirt on your food into your body. And he said to the crowd, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defiles him. He later explains, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated? That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. I find it interesting that pretty much that entire list of sins is about mistreatment of other people. Here these Pharisees are so concerned with these externals, with their system, with the boxes that they check down to meticulous detail, but they're not behaving in a way that loves others. Jesus would later say you've missed out on the weightier matters. Jesus would also say the greatest two laws are to love God and love your neighbor. Look, I'm all for conservative thinking, searching the pattern of God, seeking to do what pleases Him. But keep in mind that you cannot prove all of your convictions and arguments. But if you aren't careful, you can still weaponize them to hurt and push away others, which reveals more about the heart than anything else. Okay, really quickly before we close, and as I think a nice way to wrap all of this up, at the end of Mark chapter 7, we see someone very, very different than those Pharisees. There is a woman a Gentile woman whose daughter is possessed by an evil spirit. She comes to Jesus and she falls at his feet. Jesus tests her by saying, look, you're just a Gentile. I'm here to serve the people of Israel. It is not good to take the children's bread, quote, and throw it to the dogs. Man, can you imagine how mad the Pharisees would have been if he had said that to them? Well, here's what she said. She said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are 
feed on the children's crumbs. What an amazing thing to say. I was reading this in the NLT earlier today, and it records Jesus saying, good answer. It was a test of her humility and her need for him, and she passed it. He said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, and the demon had left. We've said a lot about humility in the previous stories today and our need to grow in lowliness. But I just want you to see the comparison, and then we're done. The Pharisee thought he had it all figured out. He was right with God. He didn't need any help, and yet he had failed to love his parents. The Gentile woman was totally on the outside, barely even classified as a disciple. She loved her daughter enough to come and plead for Jesus to help and even pass his test to try to push her away. I want to be more like her. I am her, or at least I ought to be. She had two things that the Pharisee was missing. One is she knew how much she needed Jesus. And two, she loved her family and pleaded with Jesus until he helped them. One felt right with God by their own merit and disregarded their family. The other felt unworthy without Jesus and sought his mercy for the sake of her family. I think I'll just leave you with that comparison and this beautiful picture of this Gentile follower of Jesus. As this episode ends and you go about your day, what's it going to be? Who are you going to be? Where are you on this dramatic spectrum between the Pharisees and disciples? Thank you so much for joining in today. If you enjoyed this program, consider sharing it with your family and your friends. As always, you can go to excelstillmore.life to sign up for the email, order the three-month journal, or just catch up on old episodes. And also, if you are looking for financial advice or future planning, give John Cunningham a call today, 205-913-1720. And remember this, whatever you choose to do today, in the name of the Lord Jesus, excel still more.